We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there. As well, ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good to see morning, you all. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. And you wrote in today, did you, Don? Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> How many K today? Uh, you know, it's pretty close to the house. Only about 12 so far, but I'll take the long way home. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. The and scenic route. Andy, yep. And Andy's on the handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> There's a visual. <laughs> yeah, sorry. First thing in the morning, folks. With my crash helmet on. <laughs> there you go. Talking about leaving Canada. <laughs> leaving Canada. And, and this is something that a lot of people, either during their work life, have, have an opportunity. It could be an overseas work time, work period. It might mean taking your family to a different country for a period of time. Mm. It might mean in retirement, deciding that you're going to leave Canada and retire in another country. And so I've had sort of all of the gamut of those where I've had clients that have left to the United States for uh, careers and no longer in Canada. I've had clients that have retired uh, overseas to Europe, uh, Portugal, Spain, France, England. Is that as hard as it sounds? Well, I am... Um, you know, it tends to be there's some connection, yeah. right? Either there's there's some family there or more family there. Perhaps they had a family property that they're moving back to mm-hmm. or a part of. It's got to be um, easier moving to the States these days, though. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, the sort of Southern holidays, like moving to Mexico or retiring yeah. mm-hmm. in Mexico, is usually driven by uh, the economics of it. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper to live there, perhaps, and yeah. uh, or it's just climate. Yeah, <laughs> yes. really. Right. Yeah, actually, I spoke to somebody not long <laughs> ago. You know, holidays there for three months, lives like a king for a fraction of what it would cost to Florida. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely like a king. Mexico versus Mexico. Florida. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, I have clients that have retired in Mexico, Lake Chapala area, which is a which is a large sort of expat area for Canadians as well as Americans. Uh, and it's amazing how much infrastructure has been built around that whole community in terms mm. of healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, accessing healthcare, uh, dental care. And it's very cost effective and they're highly trained. Mm-hmm. They are usually doctors uh, or dentists that have been trained in, in either Canada or the United States, uh, but simply taken up a practice there. And their fees are not as high as they are here. Mm-hmm. But the quality of work has been excellent. So yeah. nobody's complained. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about leaving Canada. And if that's sort of on your horizon, whether you're a retiree or you're thinking about working outside of Canada for an extended period of time, a couple of things that sort of pop up. Number one, do I keep filing tax returns? What happens in terms yeah. of my taxation here in Canada? What happens in terms of my RRSPs, my TFSAs, and my pensions that are here in Canada as well? And so in, in terms of taxation, I think one of the, the first thing that sort of think people think about is you got to be careful about getting double taxed. And double taxation is uh, can be really, really problematic because it depends on two main sort two main issues, and one is the resident status. So mm-hmm. technically, where does CRA see you in terms of your resident status? And number two is tax treaties. And uh, tax treaties are negotiated around the world with various uh, different governments. And but if you are not part, if you are not going to be living in a country that has a tax treaty with Canada, you could very easily end up with double taxation. Okay. Has Donald Trump attacked snowbirds yet? 
not that I'm aware of. Is it is it is it still uh, feasible for Canadians to go down there and and have a good time, or are they getting nailed? Well, um, you know, the I think the only thing they're getting nailed on is the exchange rate more yeah. than anything yeah, right now, yeah, just yeah, because yeah. of that. And uh, and if you're an, if you want to become a, a property owner in the states, then you know you're going to be subject to a whole bunch of other taxation issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know there are we there are cross border tax specialists, and that's one tip I will tell people: that if you're contemplating this. In addition to seeing your financial planner, you'll need to talk to a cross-border tax specialist right, as right. well. So double taxation is a concern. And uh, for example, we do have a tax treaty with the United States. So if an individual leaves Canada and goes to the United States and they're <laughs> deemed to be a non-resident by CRA, we'll talk about that in a second, then um, if they pay tax, they'll, they'll, they'll pay tax on their American income in the United States. But they can also uh, claim pay tax on their Canadian income, but they'll get a credit against the right. other, so they're not doubly taxed on these on the scenarios. Same thing would apply to um, the UK, a lot of European countries. So you just but you just have to be careful if you're sort of on a on a smaller non none of the big you know ten. Yeah. I would say double check to make sure you have a tax treaty that Canada's tax treaty with that country. So residence status, residence status. You know, if you are deemed to uh, become a non-resident for resident status, then you will not be double taxed, Mm -hmm. okay? There might be some withholding tax on money that's paid here, and then you can recover that if you have a tax treaty. You will be double taxed if it's determined that you're still a resident of Canada. So this is where you've got to be careful. So one or the other. Exactly. So how do I become a non-resident? And that's the key. Becoming a non-resident involves uh, a bunch of different sort of checklists that CRA will look at that will sort of stack up to determine if you're going to be a non-resident or not. Does resident matter if you own the home or rent? Uh, where you're going? Yes. Where you're, you can rent, um, but they are looking for permanence. Right. And so um, if you are in a, a motel... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you're paying you're a, a Disney, week by no. week rent. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you had a lease for a year, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that that would be fine. Right. So, right. Uh, but rent month by month would probably be not mm-hmm. considered um, a permanent residence. So uh, in Canada, one question, the first question will be, did you sell your home? And so if you have sold the home here in Canada, your principal residence, then that's going to be a lot, that's going to say a lot in terms of your commitment to this process. Uh, To your question, are you a permanent resident in another country? In other words, you're not renting week by week or month to month. You're into a long-term commitment. Um, And did your spouse and dependents go with you? So the whole family went, you know, not just, not just you for an extended period of work time. Um, I know people in our neighborhood who work in, uh, New York Mm -hmm. and they're gone for four days of the week and then they're back for the three days for a three day weekend. Uh, but the family is still here in Canada. Uh, Number four, have you severed your social ties? So these would typically be your professional and community memberships. So, you know, if you had a, uh, a membership at a golf club, mm-hmm. you had a, um, a membership for your uh, professional associations, you know, or you're involved in other committees, et cetera, and you're still part of those or a member of those as well. So on the other hand, you might be considered a resident, a resident of Canada still 
if you keep a second property in Canada. Hmm. So yes, you still have the cottage or you still have your condo or you still have your house here in Canada that you can come back to. Uh, number two would be personal property. So personal property, such as a car, did you keep the car? So when you do come back, you can mm. access the vehicle. And going, going back to the vacation property, that's really no different than having a, say a, a house you have in Florida. Mm-hmm. You're a Canadian resident and you are now spending a lot of time in Canada, but you could switch that. All yeah. of a sudden you're living in the place in Florida right? and then you have a vacation property in Canada. right? And I've seen uh, clients of mine do that and they've had a vacation property, say near Collingwood right? and where they were planning on living, but mm-hmm. uh, they switched, changed their mind and now they are actually living in the States mm-hmm. and they can flip back to the exact opposite down the road. Mm-hmm. And they're actually thinking about that because of course our healthcare. Yeah. Ah, that'll yeah. be one of my, one of the points. One of your points you're going to exactly. get to. Yeah, so. yeah. For sure. So your personal property, how much personal property have you retained in Canada? Do you have a car? Do you have a boat here? Do you have other, you know, vehicles, etc.? Have you maintained your driver's license here in Ontario? Mm. Uh, have you kept your passport? Uh, have you updated or kept a health insurance or private health insurance? And do you have Canadian bank accounts or credit cards still? So these are all going to be sort of X's in their, right. t- in their tick box to determine if you are a non-resident or still a Canadian resident. So what happens to my Canadian assets when I leave my country permanently? Well, you are deemed to fi- file a final departure tax return, final departure tax return. And let's say, for example, November 1st was going to be your last day in Canada. So on that date, you're, that'll be the de- final date in terms of determining that you have now have left Canada. The, there's good news and bad news. The, the bad news is, is that all of your non-registered investments, so if you owned um, a stock portfolio at your work that you had purchased stock that mm-hmm. would deem to have been sold, any gains or losses at that point would then be subject to tax. So if you've got, if you had gains at that point, you're going to have to trigger those capital gains and mm-hmm. pay tax on them, right. even though you haven't mm-hmm. sold the actual stock. Right. So this is called a deemed disposition. And so all of those assets are deemed to be sold at fair market value. Capital gains tax has to be paid. But your RSPs, tax-free savings accounts, and registered education savings plans, for example, and principal residents are not subject to the deemed disposition. But they could be taxed in the new country. So, for example, in the United States, principal residence exemption isn't recognized. Right. So now you've got to be careful in terms of that other type of... And same thing with tax-free savings accounts. Tax-free savings accounts in the United States are taxable. They're not deemed to be tax-sheltered. You still are taxed on your Canadian source income and withholding tax would apply to that as well. And the next question is, can I get my Canadian pensions and my health coverage as an expat? Uh, the answer is yes to Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security. You've earned those, although again, they would be subject to some withholding tax depending on the country where you're staying mm-hmm. and living now. Uh, no, you do not get to continue to receive your guaranteed income supplement, employment insurance, or child tax benefit. And healthcare, if you retain, if you live for 153 days in Ontario, you can continue to keep your uh, keep your healthcare coverage. Right. But the problem is that might put you offside in terms of CRA's checklist that you still have a closer connection to right. Ontario. Uh, so what most people end up doing is they can come back to Canada, but there is a waiting period of three months before you get your health, Ontario, your OHIP is back and reestablished. Mm. So just to wrap it up, I think the, the key tips to all of this, uh, as I mentioned before, number one, meeting with a cross-border tax specialist if you're going to be doing this 
business, meet with your financial planner to talk about it as well. And the other key one is to trigger all the gains on your registered accounts Mm -hmm. before you leave the country. So let me explain what I mean by that. So in your tax-free savings account, your RSPs, et cetera, let's just use um, tax-free savings accounts as an example. Let's say you've put in the maximum 57500 but you've done well, and that account is now worth 100000 So if you went to the States and suddenly tried to sell that investment, they're going to tax you on the difference between right. 575 and $100,000 mm-hmm. because that's what you paid for them. If you, before you move, you sell those investments and buy something else, you will reset the adjusted cost base to $100,000. And now you would only pay tax in the United States on the gain from $100,000 and upwards. The exact same thing applies to your RRSPs and your your, uh, RESPs. And there's no tax implications to you here in Canada to do that, to sort of reset the clock and create a new adjusted cost base for all those investments before you leave the country. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. Call now, leave a message, they'll return your call. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button as well. Listen to old shows. Uh, That's at the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Talking about the rule of 20. What is this? Rule of 20. Nine years ago, one of the firms in the States came up with a system saying, okay, we've got a really easy way to see if you can retire. You use this rule of 20. So at age 60, you didn't have to wait till 65. 60, you simply take your money and and divide it by 20. Mm -hmm. So if you had a million dollars, divide by 20, that's 50,000 a year. So basically, if you needed $50,000 a year to live on Mm -hmm. from your investments, now you may have pensions and other things, that would last as long as you live. Mm -hmm. Okay? So in, in that... Basically, took into account inflation, and then your money would run out at age 90. Mm-hmm. So that was the other part. Right. So you might need 50 now. Now, th- there's a few things there. They estimated that the average return was going to be about 5.95%. Mm-hmm. And this was a, an, an estimate of using about 65% bonds and 35% stocks, and you would make almost 6%. And it seems really optimistic right now. And uh, But they said, you know, this is a... Easy way just to do a like off the cuff, see if I can retire kind of calculation. I'm never a big fan of anybody coming up with some rule. This is how, here's the new rule to retire on because mm-hmm. they never seem to work. They only work until they don't. Yeah. And you don't want to be the guy that finds out it doesn't work. Um, so they've looked at it now and you say, okay, w- the rule 20 still works, but now you have to take it at age 65, right. not 60. And that will get you to age 90. Okay, well, the problem is there's a lot of 65-year-olds now living past 90. So, therefore, you may want to say, if you think you're going to live to 98, you then have to use a rule of 25. Mm. Divide it. So, it's 4% instead of 5% returns. But uh, very optimistic. And I, I, I struggle with these these things. So, I came across this the other day, and I'm thinking, okay, I would never look at a person's retirement based on a formula that simple. Because um, things are things vary too often. Um, right now, for example, the bond rate is 2.2%. So if 65% of your investments were in bonds, that's earning 2.2%. Mm-hmm. 
That would mean the other portion would have to be earning about six and a half, seven percent in stocks. Certainly doable, but again, you're putting it out there in the skinny branches, if you will, mm -hmm. and it's getting a little risky. And so, at the end of the day, they, I, we look at planning. Andy and I is taking a lot <laughs> of data, and we stress test it four ways. We take a look at a fairly conservative rate of return. So normally we use say five percent, mm -hmm. and that's generally at say about a 60% or 70% equity and 40 or 30% fixed income. Actually the opposite mix that this rule of 20 used. We also use inflation at about 3%. And I know inflation rate has been 1.8, 2%. Two and a half is kind of where it is now. I know it hit, it hit even three not long ago, mm -hmm. but we don't quite know where it is, but I'd rather go a little bit more aggressive on the inflation and a bit more conservative on the investment return. We also use age 95 for age. So we also look at longevity. Right. So we add longevity risk into there. And finally, we use standard deviation. So the amount of your, how much your investments go up and down. So if the standard deviation is say 10%, your 5% return that we've mm -hmm. estimated could go as high as 15 one year or right. down to minus five another year. And so now you've got four different ways that really stress test the situation. And then we also add in, of course, true lifestyle, buying cars, you know, putting kids through school and everything else you can imagine goes into this plan. Sure. And it's still not going to be accurate because things change. You still don't know, you know, uh, a wedding comes up that, you know, you expected, but it costs a lot more. A renovation came in yeah. that you didn't expect. There's always still the unexpected, but... As much as we put into that, it becomes more accurate. So first and foremost, if you find a, a, a software program that you think is going to you know, help you, these are all nice aids, but at the end of the day, you really should see a financial planner and really put in the data to see if you in stress test your situation. Because mm -hmm. again, with the biggest risk I find right now is probably longevity risk. Yeah, yeah. You know, people are living longer. Centurions, the largest segment, of the growing segment <laughs> of the population. Mm, fastest growing, absolutely. Yeah. And... Uh, and then all these people that perhaps took Canada Pension Plan at age 60, mm. and they took quite a discount to do that, and now they, you know, that might have been their only pension. And so that's a whole other subject on what you should do in terms of your age you pick and old age security and everything else. But the first things first, make sure you have a proper plan done, and, and don't try to make it too simple, because again, too simple usually means it's not done accurately. Yeah. Now on that subject of retirement though, some people are running out of money. Elderly, older people are starting to run out of money because they are living longer. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, okay, should I look at that reverse mortgage? Right. Or perhaps a HELOC, which is a home equity line of credit. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those, that's really kind of the, you know, the two you look at. So right now, if you looked at a mortgage, uh, sorry, a reverse mortgage, if you got a mortgage on your own house right now and somebody says, hey, yo, we can get you a mortgage at 6.59% for five years. You'd be going, what? Yeah. Well, what year is this? Now, I know I can get 3.47 uh, from some broker right now. Like, that's 3% higher than a five-year mortgage that you can get. Well, that's what a five-year fixed HELO, uh, reverse mortgage, rather, right. is charging right now. So if you took out, say, $100,000 out of your house. So first of all, reverse mortgage is you can take out a certain amount of money. So your house is worth, say, 500000 And they say, you know what? Um, you can take out 200000 out of your house. And you decide, you know, I'm going to pull out 100 right now. I'm going to do a renovation. I'm going to go on a trip. I got some things I want to do. And that should carry me for the next couple of years. Well, 
that debt, you don't pay any of this debt, it just grows. Yeah. And that debt doubles every five, every uh, 11 years mm -hmm. at that rate, 6.59%. So here we got this reverse mortgage at 100,000, at 65, well at 76 it's now 200,000. Yeah. At 87 it's 400,000. And by 98, it's 800,000 is what you owe. Hopefully your house grows as fast as this thing's growing, okay? So Which, it's better for a line of credit. Well, and the, yes, and so we'll get to that too because there's some problems with the line of credit, but uh, there is a, the, there's, the industry leader in this is home equity and uh, they've got $800 million this year in reverse mortgages, wow. $800 million. And it's, you know, one good thing, it's good for strap, cash drop seniors that want to stay in their own house. Yeah. They they probably wouldn't qualify for a line of credit. Right. They don't have enough income. Right. But their biggest asset sitting there, and they want to draw on that asset. <coughs> uh, it may actually, like I said, it may be their only option. Right. And as much as I'm not a big fan of it, um, there's a couple places it does make sense. Let's say you need to put twenty thousand into the house yeah. just to get it ready to sell. Right. So you get a reverse mortgage. Mm -hmm. You can't get financing anywhere else. Yeah. So you get the reverse mortgage, use the 20,000, maybe even live in it for an extra year or two, right. and then you sell it. Okay, so it gives you that. Um, and, like, and the biggest thing is there's no payment. You don't have to make any payments on this. Yeah. I think what it, was the, at, at 6.59%, yeah. basically the amount you owe is doubling every 11 years. Correct. Yeah. 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 Yikes. Yeah, every 11 years amount you owe. But so, they don't tell you that though, do they? They massage it, yeah. okay. Um, they talk about the the key the key you know things that are great about it, yeah, yeah. and you, here's some money we can do. Now you don't have to take it all up front. Mm. So let's say you qualify for um, two hundred thousand dollars. You can get say just twenty five thousand up front, and then just start taking five thousand every time you need more. Right. They do kind of ding you, which is a little, a little irritating. They charge you fifty bucks every time you take out a withdrawal. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so. You take out five grand and they ding you with fi five, uh, sorry, $50, which is, uh, you know, 1%. Yeah. On a $5,000 withdrawal. I guess they don't want you using it like an ATM. You just get it all out once a mm. month or twice a month or, or sorry, uh, once every a few year. months. Yeah, yeah once a year, yeah. Yeah, and it's not like they're not making enough money on these already. Yeah. Okay, yeah. they're already making a great spread on the interest rate, but then you ding it with this extra $50 fee every single time. Yeah. And we know how much we all love bank fees, right? Yeah, really. So... You, it's still probably cheaper to pay the 50 bucks mm -hmm. um, than taking up a bigger amount of money and right. letting that interest grow. But again, it's just one of those things that just irritates you. Now, a HELOC, on the other, uh, on the other hand, like a, a home equity line of credit, it has a lower interest rate. So currently, you can get prime at 3.7% up to, say, 4.45%. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the range mm -hmm. of, of a line of credit. And that is f a variable rate. Now... If you did take a variable rate reverse mortgage, that is an option, it would be 6%. So it's practically about 2% higher, mm -hmm. the reverse mortgage versus a variable yeah. um, HELOC, a line of credit. And you know, on $100,000, that's $2,000 a year compounded, just difference between the two. And that's just on 2%, it's mm -hmm. actually a lot, it could be more than that. Um, however, they are harder to get because you have to show that you have cash flow that supports your expenses. You're applying for a loan. Mm. Where reverse mortgage, you're not applying for a loan. You you got they're just simply looking at the equity of that line of credit, right? Right. And they're saying, okay, you got this much equity, we'll give you this much based on age. They know how long people. Why live wouldn't they to. do the same thing with a line of credit? Because you still have the same equity. Yeah, true enough. 
but they look at it more of a loan right. and they want people they do want you to make payments on the loan right yeah. okay as opposed to letting it just capitalize yeah. now that part of the payments is eh, kind of wishy-washy because you can always just take out more out of your line of credit all right so if you need mm -hmm. money for your line of credit for the payments on the loan, just take out another thousand, and that will make the line of the credit payments without a fifty dollar fee. Without getting dinged <laughs> every time. Good point. With every exactly, <laughs> and so the other part that with a HELOC is if your spouse dies, there might be an issue because the lender often reviews the loans upon a major life event such as a death, and so they say, okay, well let's see if this person still qualifies for the loan. Because if a spouse dies, maybe the, the, their pension has decreased significantly. Right, right, right. Um, maybe they're, they don't have as much because of their taxes situation. Who knows? There's a whole lot of happen. A whole lot happens in terms of one spouse dying in, in their finances. So they check out the loan. Oh, you no longer qualify for this loan. Well, now it may force your hand to move at mm -hmm. that time, or perhaps take a reverse mortgage at that time if you have to. Right. Still be cheaper. <clears throat> um, but again, one of the best things is literally you can use it as you need it. As Andy was mentioning, no fifty dollars. Take out five thousand a month, and you only get being charged, uh, or five thousand every few months. You're being charged interest as you as you use it, and it's uh, it can get very expensive. So if you look at uh, a HELOC at two hundred thousand, and at four percent, that's a six hundred sixty-seven dollar payment per month. Okay, so you're going to need that payment, but again, all you need to do uh, really is simply cash in mm -hmm. that money. Now, if you use a hundred thousand. Of the 200,000, you can actually, in, instead of 11 years, as it does to borrow, as it takes to double rather in the uh, reverse mortgage, it takes 17 years to use up that room. Wow. Way different. Okay, so a massive advantage using one over the other. And, uh, but the, the big key here, and this is where you need, do need a planner, or at least plan ahead. You don't necessarily need a planner, but look at this particularly, is you need to do this when you don't need it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm still working. Well, you know what? I should take out a line of credit. Well, I don't really need a line of credit. That's when you should do it. Yeah. You qualify for it right yeah. now because you're still working. Right. And so take out this line of credit um, and it's in your back pocket. You know, you paid whatever amount for the legal fees to set it up. It's based on your house. Um, let's say it, uh, it, it may cost you $500 and it's just sitting there. And it's in your back pocket. You know, I've had many, I've had many scenarios of clients that have used the home equity line of credit to bridge themselves through retirement. And in almost all the cases, then what the inevitable plan was is that they were going to sell their house. So a lot of times a reverse mortgage is somebody who wants to stay in their house throughout uh, like a period of long-term care, mm -hmm. uh, but doesn't have the resources to pay for it. So now they're using that equity without having to make the payments. And then they're hoping they leave their house in a wooden box, I guess, because mm -hmm. <laughs> then yeah. if they had to, they don't want to have to worry about selling and paying yeah. it all off and finding a new place to live. So the home equity line of credit and the, the trick there too is you don't want to go above 80% uh, of the value, maybe 60% of the value of your home, because as Don said, then you can flip it into a reverse mortgage if you do want to stay in your home longer. Right. But uh, most clients, and the other thing when you're using a home equity line of credit, as you're making those $5,000 withdrawals or $10,000 withdrawals, I tend to see it, it's more about um, lifestyle things that people are trying to do. But there's also a little bit of a check and balance there. So, you know, in, a, in the sense that you're, you can see the amount you owe going up. And so every time you take money, you might 
have a sober second thought. And, yes. and not that we want to curtail anyone's retirement lifestyle, but at the same time, it does sort of act as a bit of a governor mm-hmm. so that you, you don't end up with too much debt. And the point where it starts to get uncomfortable, you know, there's the debt has gotten, let's say you borrowed, you have a line of credit of 200,000, you're now at, you know, 160 or 180, and you're getting close to the max. Right. That's where, you know, you, t- you start to look at the alternative of selling the home. Mm-hmm. And so, but if that can keep you in your home for another 15 or 20 years, then all be, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's given people a lot more flexibility to enjoy their lifestyle. And it's kind of interesting, Canadians and actually Americans also, look at the houses, I got to leave this to the kids. For some reason, it's that asset that I'm going to pass on to the kids. And yet it's one of their biggest assets. In some cases, it's their largest asset. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why not use it? And if it allows you to augment your lifestyle in a tax-effective way, why not do that? And when I say tax-effective, I mean, you're taking this income from your line of credit or a reverse mortgage, whichever you happen to find works for you, and you don't pay tax on this income. This is borrowed money. Mm-hmm. This isn't earned income. Mm-hmm. So when you were pulling money out of your RSPs to live on and they ran dry, well, you weren't able to collect, uh, you know, say guaranteed income supplement mm-hmm. because your income was too high and you may have been even in a higher tax bracket. As soon as that RSP pot of money is gone, now you start using this funding to help fund you, your tax bracket can be way lower. Mm-hmm. And so there may be some tax savings and you may not need as much money as you think you will. Because part of your cost of pulling money out of the RSP is, is pure tax. What about the generation that's depending on the inheritance from the parents in order to get their first house and all that stuff? Where does that leave the next generation? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of always thought... That's up to them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> renting. I'd rather teach the kids to fish rather than just give them the fish. I hear you. And, uh, you know, that's a great, great, great problem right now because there's a well, lot of people... Well, we see that in 20 years. Well, we see that this is... That the, the, the template's different now because more and more are relying on that. Mm-hmm. Or thinking they are. And yeah. then all of a sudden they're... Oh, not there. Yeah, not there. Or, oh, geez, my uh, mother to somebody else and uh, yeah. I'm not getting that funds now. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot. Be self-sufficient as much as you can. Absolutely. Exactly. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. Call now, leave a message, they'll return your call. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now, leave a message, they'll return it. 905-529-7165. Check out the website, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Talking about family trusts. Family trusts, and and this is a, um, it's sort of an advanced financial planning strategy or technique that, uh, that we've had the opportunity to use a few times and with a lot of success, and I think in terms of being able to save people tax and actually get more money uh, into the hands of children mm-hmm. or grandchildren in particular too. Um, but you, a family investment trust and, and sort of who should consider a family investment trust? A family investment trust, it's right for you if you've got cash and investments that are not going to be needed to fund your own lifestyle needs. Mm. Plus, 
you're motivated to either establish an investment fund for the next generation, or maybe it's to provide funding for schooling or extra expenses for a child or grandchild. So basically, you're an individual, you've accumulated enough wealth that you don't need all of this capital for your your own lifestyle, your own retirement, and uh, you've got family or the next generation that you'd like to be able to help out, and mm-hmm. you're just trying to figure out an efficient, what's an efficient way to do this. So family trust, um, and why a family investment trust? Well, family investment trust basically means you end up with more capital or accumulated for your children or, or grandchildren in a tax-efficient manner. And it reduces the after-tax costs of paying for those non-essential expenses to the benefit of grandchildren. So um, there are two types of investment trusts. Well, if you've got, you can have a separate trust for each child or grandchild, and these are these are called uh, age 40 trust. Mm-hmm. Age 40 trust. So if you're listening, you want to learn more information, Google age 40 trust. And basically an age 40 trust is is the has the capacity to facilitate a tax-efficient accumulation of investments for the future use of your grandkids. And when the beneficiaries are under the age of 21, there's a special provision in the Income Tax Act which allows the beneficiary to have received the annual income from the trust and any realized gains without an actual payment being made from the trust. So uh, in most trusts that have an income component that they earn interest, so if you, let's put an example, if you had uh, $200,000 and you invest that into a family trust, investment trust, and it earns 4%, so it earns $8,000. Normally the trust would have to pay that out in order to have it taxed in, at a low rate because a, t- a, tr- a trust by itself, any income it earns is taxed at the highest marginal tax rate right now. So it's not very tax efficient on its own. But the age 40 trust, any beneficiary under the age of 21 can claim that income, that $8,000 of income, but leave the money in the trust. So now it can continue to compound, mm-hmm. right? So you're not having to remove the money. And of course, if an individual under 21 has no other income, they can earn about $10,000 of interest tax-free, $20,000 of capital gains tax-free, and $50,000 of dividends tax-free, and so pay no tax. So basically, that eight grand earned on that example is all tax-free, and but it sits in the trust and continues to compound. Um, so the age 40 trust is, is, deal, is clearly when you're just sort of dealing with one or you might have one or two children, you want to have a separate trust. The other, the other option, number two, is a discretionary family trust where you would have multiple beneficiaries. And that's often a preferred way if, if the intention is to use the income and capital gains to fund expenses for a whole bunch of children and grandchildren. Uh, and, but the trustees basically have complete discretion over how much and to who, etc. So when you create these trusts, you have to have a settler, and a settler is the person, an individual who cannot be involved in any of the decision processes going forward, or the trust would be tainted, and that settler could often be a friend, um, and usually what they would donate is some monetary amount, it could be a $50 bill. You never, you just keep the $50 bill with the trust documents. It's never part of a um, investment anywhere, or it could be a gold coin, anything that doesn't produce income. Mm-hmm. So therefore it, uh, but it does establish the trust and that will allow the parents or the grandparents to continue to provide 
um, as the trustees, they, they can oversee and all the, the, the comings and goings of the trust for their grandchildren. Um, and so in terms of putting the money into the trust, there are two different ways that people will do it. One would be a, a no interest loan. So I, I have 200000 I create a family trust. Uh, investment trust, and I've decided that uh, I'm not going to charge any interest on this loan. I'm loaning the money to the trust. What will happen is, is this is considered because the children are under the age of 18, uh, any income generated by the trust is going to be taxed back to the parents, except for capital gains. So it's generally not the most efficient way. The other way is using what's called a prescribed rate loan. And prescribed rates in Ontario now, I know they were 1%. Have we moved? Yeah, you know, I think they're still still are in 1%. 1%. So um, every year the trust on my $200,000 would pay me in by the January 30th of every year, following every year, two grand, 1% on my 200000 Now, because I've charged an interest rate and I've received that interest, any income that the trust earns is going to be taxed by the beneficiaries and the trust. So it's a very tax-efficient way to do it. Um, there are some rules around uh, taxing in- income on ta- uh, income splitting, but uh, this using these trusts uh, gets yourself around those rules as well. And just quickly, the basic, the bottom line, if I was look at a comparison on the returns, if I just had two hundred thousand dollars that I that if a client kept that in their own name and invested, versus putting that same money into a family investment trust, and we look at what that would uh, generate for them 10 years out, the difference in terms of uh, taxation over 10 years is $29,000. And the difference in terms of the actual capital available for your children or grandchildren is 31800 is the net difference return over 10 years. Mm. So on a 200 grand investment, that's a pretty significant difference in terms of the amount of money left over. And the majority of that is by paying less tax. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old shows and as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Best places to live and retire in the country. In Canada. I know Andy was talking about leaving Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you leave Canada? <laughs> Such a beautiful place. Uh, maybe those income taxes are a bit high. Winter? But, uh, yeah, for those <laughs> ones, yes. And uh, there isn't too many warm places in the winter in Canada. No. But um, they, they do a survey. And if you, for any of the listeners, go to uh, Money Sense. And you can always check out the survey and how they come along. But it's quite interesting. They, they do this every year. And the top 10 places to live are probably a little different than the top 10 places in Canada to retire. So I'm going to go through each of these. So right now... Uh, the 10th spot is Halton Hills. Mm-hmm. Okay, not far from here. So is it to live or retire This first? is to live. To live. To Halton live, thank Hills, you. right? Um, it was 24th last year, now it's 10th. Mm. Um, St. Lambert or Lambert mm-hmm. in uh, Quebec mm-hmm. is 9th. Westmount, Quebec was 8th. Mm. So Quebec's kind of made a spot. Both of those were in the 50s last year. Really? So they've moved up dramatically. Canmore, Alberta, mm. beautiful place. Yeah. Uh, moved from 29th to 7th. Here's one, uh, probably the, one of the bigger moves, 
was Milton, Ontario. Really? Yes. It is sixth on the list. Wow. And it was 151st last year. Um, Lacombe, or Lacombe, Alberta is fifth. It was 299th last year, so I don't know what went on there. Um, St. Bruno de Monterville, Quebec. It uh, has been steady. It's fourth this year. It was sixth last year, so it must be a very nice place to live. Ottawa was first last, uh, it was first last year, and it is second this year. Hmm. And drum roll, please. Yeah. Who do you think number one is? Your hometown. Hamilton? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite. It is Oakville. Mm-hmm. It is Oakville. Oakville was 15th last year, and it is now number one. Mm. Now, they look at a lot of different things. They look at population. They look at the unemployment rate. Okay, they look at the median household income, which is 112. 100, uh, sorry, median household income in Oakville is 112,000. They look at the average net worth. About uh, 1.7 million is the average net worth in Oakville. Um, this is a very interesting one. Property taxes as a percentage of income. And it's 2.6%. Hamilton's over 3%. Hmm. So the property taxes as part of how much they make. And uh, it's a little higher here. Days over 20 degrees Celsius. There's 107 days in Oakville. Crime rate per 100,000 population is 2,133 p- um, crimes mm-hmm. per 100,000. So about 2.1%. And doctors per 100,091. That's another area. So they look at all these. They also look at a few other ones. But I thought, okay, what about others around the area? Um, Hamilton was not in the top 25. I'll get to Hamilton. Burlington was 31. Mm-hmm. Okay. Grimsby was 83. Guelph was 128. London was 162. Hamilton was 163. Not terrible certainly but and I'll, and I'll tell you why in a sec but uh, certainly walks to work two percent so that's kind of the same as oakville bikes to work 0.46 percent about the same as oakville uh transit about four um four point sorry 5.4 percent oakville tra- um, taking transit public transit to work is 8.27 that's considered a benefit so they don't have to hop in a car right okay um as i mentioned property taxes as a percentage of income was higher crime rate that was the big p- problem in Hamilton versus Oakville, it was 4,550 crimes per 100,000 versus 2,133. Now, to put that in perspective, I said, well, is that high or low? I don't know. Actually, no, it seems like a lot. So I checked out a few uh, uh, cities out west. Kelowna was over 11,000 crimes per 100,000. Really? Yes. Victoria um, and BC and, and Vancouver were around 10,000. What's with all those old people out there? <laughs> I know. So it turns <laughs> it out that violent. Hamilton's still a very, very safe. So don't get me Dust wrong. Dust up in Tim Hortons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just happened Overturning to be. Overturning chairs and tables again. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but Oakville is uh, particularly safe. Now, how's that stack up? If What if you want to retire? Well, things change when you retire. They look at a few different uh, um areas a bit more they weight it differently so they also look at um days per year with rain or snow Mm. okay yeah when you retire you don't want to see that as much Mm -hmm. or days per year with just rain um days per year over zero celsius not just 20 and they look at the crimes for hundred thousand, but they also look at crime severity what how severe are the crimes right um doctor's offices become more important and there's this one uh, thing called the community index where the higher the better is so in a nutshell, it says best places to retire 
um, Ontario took the top 10 spots. Really? Unbelievable. Hmm. You had Newmarket, number one, uh, hmm. number 10, mm-hmm. Newcomsey, Belleville, Cornwall, Milton, Carleton Place, Burlington was number four, hmm. Oakville, Toronto, and Ottawa was number one. Hmm. This, this is to retire. This is to retire now. Wow. Hamilton was 28th. Hmm. It moved up dramatically from 163rd to live, but if you're going to retire here, it's a great place to retire. Isn't that yeah. something? And, and again, it comes to how they weight things. Now, there's been a, a bit of a surge in certain areas, like Collingwood is 16th. Hmm. You're seeing them come out of the blue with a yeah. lot more people from Toronto yeah. going to Thornbury, Collingwood, yeah. lifestyle, and they're getting the infrastructure in place. I wouldn't be shocked to see Collingwood move up there. But the best place in Atlantic was Fredericton, best place, which was 77th. Uh, Quebec was uh, Westmount. The Prairies was Saskatoon. Uh, Alberta was Calgary, number 36. BC was Whistler. And uh, Really? Yeah, 18th. Victoria, which I always thought was, yeah. that's where everybody retires. Yeah. Yeah. It was 64th. Oh. Way behind Hamilton. Really? So all these people that go west thinking, okay, it's, yeah. you know, right in our backyard here in Ontario is it's the best place to retire in Canada. Yay. <laughs> all right. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at Andy and Don. That's Andy and Don, all one word, dot com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great Thanks, week. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott.